This is an ArmorPod production. Send all production inquiries to armorpod at gmail.com. Welcome, friends, to the first episode of Punching Sideways. My name is Josh. Today we're joined by professional busker and traveller Josh Thompson and or Jin, as he is known on the interwebs and throughout Southeast Asia. It's a really great chat. We talk a lot about London. And as this is the first episode... The aim of this show, in my mind, was for me to be able to talk to people who travel around, go to different places. I'm planning on doing a lot more traveling. I didn't do it in my 20s and early 30s. It's one of my great regrets. And this podcast is really meant to be an accountability for me. So I've got great people coming on. It's definitely not the Tim Ferriss life hacker crowd or anything like that, because I personally don't have a lot of interest in the way they travel and the interests that those people have in general. The people I'm inviting on, they're more likely to go to an NBA basketball game or to Comic-Con than they are to jump out of an aeroplane. So hopefully that doesn't put you off too much. But yeah, it's the Nerdist meets a travel show. That's what I'm going for. So hopefully we get somewhere near there. And ideally, the show might be one one hundredth or even one thousandth as funny as the Nerdist is. Okay, on with the show. This is Josh Thompson or Jin talking about London and how he arrived in Singapore with no shoes. Okay, enjoy. There's a pretty interesting story as to how you actually found your way to London. So can we get the micro version of that? Micro version. As micro as you can make it. G'day everybody. Uh, Jin here. Thanks for having me again, Listo. This is probably maybe podcast number four or five for us. On, across different shows yeah, yeah. across different shows um, the first one with an actual focus i think <laughs> <laughs> uh, the so how i found myself in london essentially i've just been a nomadic musician for the last three and a half years and when i say nomadic i've literally been drifting with another friend of mine uh, learning how to play music along the way of traveling to fund getting to the next spot so essentially we left with a couple of hundred dollars in a car uh, and three and a half years later, we found ourselves in the UK, in London. Okay, that was micro. We could probably flesh that out a little bit more. Okay. So, <laughs> when you're saying that you learnt to play on the road, you were an accomplished percussionist or drummer for a heavy metal band and rock and roll styles well and truly before that. So, when you say learning to play on the road, you're more talking yeah. about playing the cajon and also learning to play guitar and sing and that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I... As I said, I played play drums in, in a band and the guy I travelled with, George, he, he knew some chords and uh, was a filmmaker. And his idea of wanting to travel was wanting to make really, really cool travel videos. My idea of wanting to travel was literally, I don't want to get a job and I want to keep doing music. Uh, drum kits are not very practical when it comes to travelling as anybody that's ever seen someone with drums or let, let alone played drums knows. And uh, we just decided that we would busk our way around the world if we could and we thought since we don't know how to do it and after looking online not finding many resources available to people who want to travel uh, and utilize music or use it as bar for for barter and we thought we would film a web series called the busker's guide and essentially build the resource that we needed as we needed it wherever we were yeah so that came to fruition while you were still doing that first run in australia from what i understand and then from memory, as we've talked about a few times in the past, I think Malaysia might have been, or was it Indonesia? Was yeah, it ne- was no, we, next on first, the list. First was stop with Singapore, so we did a, 
essentially a, we called it the tutorial in gaming words uh, of the East Coast and we decided we didn't hate it and we and we did survive it. So we drove from Melbourne to Darwin to uh, Melbourne to Perth to Darwin. Then we flew to Singapore. The idea was to get to India, but we we were broke when we left. But uh, we were even more broke in Malaysia. They don't have very high disposable incomes. In the first countries we visited, uh, we weren't able to earn enough to get to the next place. So we kind of had a bit of help and went to South Africa after that. Came back to Australia, did another two West Coast runs, Melbourne to Perth to Darwin, back to Perth. Then flew to the UK, uh, where we spent majority of the time in Cardiff, but we did also land and leave from London. Then after that, we got picked up to go touring with another artist as his backing band for a European tour. That's awesome. So we found our way to the UK, but let's maybe talk about that flight first, because my understanding is you'd accumulated a fairly sizable amount of equipment by the time you left Southeast Asia and we're heading to South Africa and then back to Australia. Where along the line did you maybe kind of max out on the amount of equipment that you were traveling with? Was that before the UK or while you were there? I think it was before the UK. So we, we had the luxury of having a car all the way around Australia, which is able to bear a lot of the load. The first time we were flying out to leave the country is when it really felt real that I was going to do the Buskers Drive. Not the year and a half I'd been living it already, but I'm going to go overseas and do this with no safety net. Um, we got to the airport and we were 35 kilos over. Um <sighs> And they were going to do $25 a kilo if we were over. Wow. So we weighed an empty suitcase, and that was $125 on its own. Now, we don't even have $125, so we can't even take that suitcase that's empty. Now we need to figure out what to do with everything that was in it. I, I kind of got upset that there was no really good way to dispose of things in airports, and I suppose that's another conversation. But we did waste a lot that day just to make the flight. Um, and I arrived in Singapore with no shoes. <laughs> You, and had, essentially, you had to lose the shoes to cut weight? Yeah, essentially we were down to grams of... Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it was an incredible experience. But, uh, you know, the 70% rule. Only pack 70% of what you need, and then if you can, have that. So, obviously, you must have found ways about negotiating that as you went along because my understanding is when you did arrive in the UK, you guys were much more equipped... When it come to gear, was there a different way of transporting that gear that you found worked or had you found a way to negotiate the systems a little bit better or did you buy stuff when you got there? Yeah, so we, we figured out the guitar itself weighed about seven kilos when it was packed. Look, that's an acoustic, so that's a, a lot, but it was packed with clothes and stuff. So we would tape the acoustic to the uh, microphone stands and the keyboard stand and we would double it up, then wrap it all as one package because you can only take one thing, but you can you know, glad wrap a few things together and you can get glad wrap for it. Sorry, $3. just for the guitar nerds amongst us, the guitar was still in its case when you wrapped it to something, wasn't it? Yeah. Tell me it yeah. was. Thanks. Yep. Sorry, I just had to clarify. So, yeah. <laughs> so as an acoustic, so you do have a bit of extra room to pack in and around it. We had a mono bag, which we're not endorsed by mono, but if I've learned anything over the last three and a half years, the absolute, if you're going to invest in anything, invest in bags that are going to help you protect your gear and they're going to help you move that gear because being able to wear a guitar instead of carrying it frees up a hand, frees up so much weight. And that, the, the mono bags are, are between a soft and a hard case. So yeah. they're really durable, waterproof, 
Um, and they protect the guitar, I think, better than a hard case in some ways because they absorb a lot of impact, a lot more impact on the sides. Yeah, and you're not likely to bash it into other people, door frames, yep. staircases if you're going up and down because yep. it's kind of on your body. That's right. Yeah, agreed. I've done a lot of <laughs> traveling with guitars and had to always be carrying them. And then depending on how heavy the guitar is, like I know my heritage, Les Paul, I carried that around Melbourne for a day. Arm falls off. My arm felt like it was going <laughs> yeah, to fall off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so can you just take us through exactly what you guys arrived with when okay. you made when you? So, so you flew into London. So we flew into Heathrow. Heathrow, yep. We flew out from Mel from Perth. Sorry, and uh, we had our BA three thirty in its case that's made specifically for the BA three thirty. There's a lot to s- Roland make incredible products and and really good really good bags, but I have found their stitching and their wheels. <laughs> They, they could be better, but it is what it is. So I guess we better just clarify as we go along. With so you. That, the B eight was that a drum machine or a... no? So that's our battery powered speaker. Right, so that, that's okay. a portable speaker. You guys were basically busking on a regular basis. That was what you were doing mostly every day to to eat. Every day to eat. Yeah, on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure yeah. we didn't get too far down. Sorry. Yeah, into the story without that being clear. So sorry. So yeah, essentially we're living off busking. So we had these items that we deemed were absolutely necessary above anything else because they afforded us the ability to move from every spot once we had got there. So we had the speaker in its case. I think that weighed about 11 kilos. Uh, I had my cajon, which is a box the size, probably as high as a normal chair at the table. Um, And you sit on that, it's an empty percussive box with snare wires on one side and it is hollow. So I got a really good bag with straps on it and it had a little bit extra room at the top that I could pack inside and zip all up together. So I, instead of having a backpack for my clothes and personal items, I would put every single thing I owned inside the cajon, which made it really, really heavy after a while. But I was able to carry that on my back. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it freed up my hands to carry other yeah, stuff. It worked at the time. <laughs> it did. Um, so George had his guitar, the Cole Clark, in the mono bag, which was full of clothes. The Cajon, the BA. We got these really cool mic stands made by Airturn. Okay. Airturn yeah. make fantastic mic stands for travelers. They're not heavy duty, so you've really got to be careful with them. But essentially, you can fold them up uh, and they will fit in a normal backpack. Well. Yeah, they're incredible. Really light material. And stable when you're using them to perform. And, and they're stable enough. Like, if you don't ask a lot from it, like you would a really heavy-duty yeah. knock around the you're stage. Not, you're not going Mars Volta on nah, them. No, <laughs> definitely yeah. not. But if, if you respect it and uh, and you don't, you know, over-tighten everything, you know, that mine's, mine lasted me, it must have been, you know, 50,000, 60,000 kilometres busking wow. every day. Yeah, that's impressive. It's incredible. George's broke pretty quickly, but I think he, I think he did his up pretty tight. <laughs> right. So we had the mics. Then we had the mics and the cables. They were by far the heaviest things. Uh, I also had my ukulele, sorry, my ukulele I carried as well with my harmonicas. And the funny thing about harmonicas is when you take them to check through customs, the brass looks like bullet casings. Jeez. So a lot of the time I got pulled up Going through immigration yeah. uh, or customs because they were like, what the hell are these in your bag? And I'm like, oh, they're just harmonicas and I have to get the harmonicas out and yeah. play a little ditty right. to prove I'm not carrying bullets. So that was a commonality through all airports? Yeah. That they were picking yep. that up? Interesting. Um, 
So the Leeds, the Leeds is another thing they hit us up on. I remember on my way back going through Abu Dhabi and uh, the guys pulled me over. I always carried the Leeds in my little pack that I take onto the plane because they usually never weigh those. Yep. So we were always putting the heaviest items on our on our body to take right. onto the plane. Yeah. And Leeds is one of those things. Um, and there was a few times where I actually got stopped and had to argue to keep my Leeds because <laughs> going through Abu Dhabi, they said, what is this? I'm like, oh, it's... It's for music. They're like, are you a DJ? I thought, oh, you prick. No, I'm not a DJ. <laughs> DJs only have to take a USB. Yeah. I said, it's for my guitars and for my ukulele. And he said, well, where's your guitar? I'm like, well, where do you think my guitar is? It's underneath a plane somewhere. Yeah. But I have my ukulele here. So I got my ukulele out and played it. And they're like, oh, you shouldn't take through these. And I'm like, you shouldn't take these through customs. And I thought, they're microphone leads. You know, yeah. if you don't know what they are that's your problem I, I know what they are everyone around me probably knows microphone leads yep. when they see a microphone lead so so how would you negotiate knowing that now at a situation where it's an innocuous item to someone that knows what it is but to someone else it's yeah yeah you know maybe you know, a red a, light went off somewhere but yeah I, I would still i would still argue the same way i did oh i'm not an argumentative person in no. saying that but i made it very obvious that it was a very obvious item maybe uncommon but yeah. surely there, I'm not the only musician traveling around that's trying to do things on the cheap. I, I, I must meet a, a traveling musician or a busker every day or at the very least every second day while, you know, for three and a half so years. So it could have just been some rude musician that got this particular person upset before you got to them? <laughs> probably. <Yeah. laughs> probably very, some very hungry, tired, flustered yeah. musician. Without the patience of you. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's maybe knuckle down a little bit on London itself now in the UK. We obviously have a focus on pop culture and how that sort of stuff rolls, but today London is such an expansive topic. It's something we're going to hit multiple times from multiple different perspectives. So I think you were spending a lot of time in the music community there, I would imagine. Yes. Can we talk about where you were staying and what sort of communities you found yourself part of in the general music scene over there? As differently as we do things when we travel, George and I, our, our traveling story, I guess, is can, be, is can be considered quite unique compared to how most people travel. Yeah. But I do think when it comes to living in London, we weren't doing things too differently from everybody else. And that was just keeping your head above water. So we arrived Heathrow. Uh, we had no money to spend on hostels, but we hadn't negotiated any accommodation yet. And just to rewind a bit, for the last three years, we were able to negotiate a hostel bed in return for playing music all around the world. So London was our first kind of proper metropolis yeah. where yeah. it's we know no one or we do know someone, but they're probably sharing a room in a house of 12, you know. Yeah. Um, so we ended up going to Earl's Court for the first night. We got the tube. That almost sent us broke. We, we'd borrowed money to get our visas because you have to have a certain amount of money in your bank account to get the, the visa. Yeah. But so we, we just borrowed that, showed <coughs> the people at the office for the interview and then we just sent it back and right. then we, we had no money again. Yeah. Um, so that was before we'd arrived. So we'd arrived with no money and it's good that they don't check that at the gate. They might do, don't take my word for it. Yeah. But all they did was speak to us about cricket at the gate, Yeah. which is equally as painful. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stay away from that one. <laughs> um, so we caught the tube to, to Earl's Court where we were we were going to stay at a hostel for one night and that was £25 each a night. 
already have, having not paid for accommodation anywhere else in the world, that was a really big blow for us, completely unsustainable. That's 50, 50 pound that we would have to earn back in that day. We'd just arrived off the plane kind of thing, being awake for 20 hours. Yeah. Earl's Court is beautiful though. It is, I don't know if it reminds me of Melbourne or I think to myself, is that where Melbourne reminds, you know? <laughs> so can you just, for anyone who isn't familiar with either place, can you just describe what it was that was appealing about going to that particular place and what you saw or experienced when you got there? Just to well, it, it was, paint the picture a little bit. Okay. So it's, it's very much cobblestone for a lot of it. Uh, it's townhouses and, and tall, you know, three, four-story buildings, just how you imagine a typical London old city street. There's like a, a pub on every corner and then there's the apartments and there's like boutique shops all the way through. Uh, maybe a pub every corner isn't enough. There was probably two pubs every, sounds, <laughs> every sounds like couple a, of corners. Sounds like a dream. Yeah. Um, thin streets, red buses. Uh, everyone's walking in their brown, black trench coats. Everyone's in a hurry, smoking cigarettes. Um, but there was something really refreshing and really beautiful. Coming from such a young country, you know, I, I guess... It's an old country, but it's it's young yep. in a lot of ways. Yes. I'd never really experienced anything like that density-wise. Um, and our hostel wasn't too far from Elcourt Station. Well, I'll make sure I dig up a picture that's yeah. I'm okay to throw in the show notes for Earl's Court. So is that somewhere where travellers tend to find themselves? Is there lots of I think accommodation so. I th there of a there, certain There, there are level? a few hostels there, but I, I think... The most attractive part is that it has a really nice nightlife. You can just bar hop all night long uh, along. I can't exactly remember the name of the road. The funny thing was later on we were, when we were looking for open mics and a lot of gigs because it's what you do, They were they, most of them ended up being back in Ells Court. So it was kind of funny to land there. And we just went pub knocking essentially the, the day we got there after we you know, had a shower and stuff and who, who books here, who books here, can we play here, can we play here? And, and most places do have booking agents. Just to go off track for a couple of seconds, what's it actually like coming from other places where what you were doing was a unique enough experience that you could trade playing music for accommodation to going to what could be considered maybe one of, if not the most influential musical cities in the entire world? in the modern era where it is a magnet for ultra talented people throughout the UK and Europe and the rest of the world to play music. Was that different when you were trying to pitch yourself to get gigs? <laughs> well, cause it's not like just rolling down the yeah, you're into a country town in Australia and asking for a gig at the pub. That's right. it, it's, it's definitely something that um, works in pockets and, and clicks yeah. We, as a basking duo, even today, we still don't have anything that we've recorded and released. We've been happy enough to release to people and say, you know what, this is us, this is our music. We've always kind of said it as we have a shop, but we don't sell anything inside. It's just empty. So yeah. we're a band, but we don't we don't have a band page. Well, we just got one now, actually. We don't have any recorded music. So it, we've always just sold ourselves on, hey, we're... We're this kind of nomadic traveling duo who does yeah. fun acoustic style upbeat covers of all your favorite crap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the reason I ask that question is, and it might be a slightly obscure reference, but I was just listening to a book called Canada by Mike Myers. So we all pretty much know who that is. 
and not many people probably think he's Canadian after the movies <laughs> the movies that he made. But is he really? Yeah. Wow. So he went to London, and he just found that in a country with so much history and has contributed so much to the world that his Canadian self-deprecating style about talking about himself and never really wanting to talk himself up as having comedic talent didn't really fly with them <laughs> so much. He, he found it a completely different world, slightly more self-serious. The people that were, you know, booking through yep. to the people organising things because they had such a plethora of talented people to choose from. And just overselling themselves. So and... I'm just wondering, for a couple of Australians that I know are pretty self-deprecating, I can't see you going in and big-wigging yourself <laughs> to someone you've never met before. Was there any learning curve involved in that? Because the reason how this applies to travel is you were basically doing it as a long-term exercise. Yes. So it's not something everyone will experience, but I just think it's interesting. There was a lot of good musicians there that saw themselves, I imagine, a lot of good ways, a lot of good buskers, even the buskers were just, you know, the cream of the crop, like the best guys you'd see on Burke Street or all kind of busking. But in, in saying that, it, it was just as much on the other side as well, which yeah. kind of blew me away. I don't have never considered myself a good or great or anything special when it comes to music or, or what George and I were doing music-wise. But um, I think we had this air of originality, even though we were doing the covers. I think it might have been a fresh, a breath of fresh air yeah. for a lot of the people who were, who were working there because we didn't find ourselves getting knocked back very much. That's good. I In, guess it wasn't really forced onto the street you guys were kind of born on the street yeah and that's like let's just start here it seems like the easiest place to just kick around and you weren't a dejected cover band singer who normally plays pubs that decided to do a few gigs down the street exactly on a morning once a week yeah and we thought if we're going to be playing these songs every day let's play them in a way that we're going to really enjoy yeah. or have a, have this kind of style that we can manipulate a lot and really have fun with yeah so i guess one thing i think is really interesting and it kind of all ties back into the amount of equipment that you had. For someone that is travelling with a fair bit of a, whatever their personal effects are, how is a city like London to negotiate when you're actually transporting a large amount of stuff around? That could be anything, but in your case, musical equipment. Out of the last three and a half years, London is the city that brought me close to saying, you know what? I think I might be having enough of this. Yeah. <laughs> Our every day was, so we got onto this hostel called St. Christopher's Network. They, yeah. they have Belushi bars, Belushi's bars. Uh, and they were really good to us. They were really accommodating. But we found that out of every city we'd been, London was going to be the hardest one to get what we needed. So instead of playing one night and getting four nights accommodation or a week's accommodation, we were playing every night for that one night accommodation. Right. So we might have charged... $300, $400 for our duo or £150 for our duo, we're playing for £30, yeah. the equivalent of, because we want that the nice room. sleep. We want yeah. the room. <laughs> so that's three hours there. Then we would catch the tube, which was probably $12.50 for both of us, maybe a bit more for the day, uh, to go busking at a market, which was lower than, uh, which is older, sorry, then I guess white Australia, Lower Marsh Markets is 400 years old. Wow. <laughs> the market's yeah. 400 years old. Wow. That blew my mind. Um, yeah. And we would pay there for, 
three and a half hours every day, rain, hail or shine. And let me tell you, in that order, that's <laughs> how it goes. Yeah. And the shine maybe will take a few days off at a time. Yeah. But th- that we couldn't let that stop us. No. no. Um, so, and that was, so, and we were doing about six and a half hours of music every single day just to survive the day because we weren't in a position to negotiate more. We we weren't even in a position to go out and get gigs or try and book gigs because London's hungry. Everyone in London's hungry. And, you know, you're there, you work, it's beautiful, but you've really got to fight for your right to be there. Yeah. Um, and back before when I was saying that how we lived wasn't too different for most people, I think most people who live in London might have some kind of life outside of work, but you are there to earn the money because you hemorrhage it while you were there. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's probably a little scary for the, the traveler to hear. Was there any particular activities that you were actually planning on doing that maybe became cost prohibitive or was there anything you found that was a cost positive that you could replace some of the more well-known things you can do in yeah, London? So, so like if you are traveling around there, and you do have money in your pocket, then you're going to have the time of your life because it's incredible. Yeah. I was just yeah. <laughs> living how I live everywhere, you know, yep. on an oily rag, as we say here. Um, I found walking actually just getting – walking is a really good way to get your bearings on a place and to really feel it out. I found walking up around, you know, the palace and just going through all the – across London Bridge and there's a really cool street called something lane um, – I can't remember the name of this oh, this lane, but it, we'll work I'll, I'll find it for yeah. you, and you and you can post it because it's. Yeah. I definitely think it's a must see when they have the night markets on. Okay, it's got that really kind of nitty gritty street vibe. Yeah, that I like, where it's a whole bunch of different people exploding together, and it's harmonious. Sounds exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, so obviously, being someone that was almost doing it as a career at the time, you probably didn't have disposable income to go and do a bunch of touristy things or visit pop culture attractions or whatever. One thing I am probably most interested in, and I know you're a pretty deep thinker as a person, can you feel the age of a place like London? Do you know you're in an older city? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I I definitely think everywhere has a soul. And I definitely notice when places don't have a soul more so actually you definitely feel like you're a part of something bigger and i guess it's like when when you go into a place like london you're a drop into a giant river and you go with it you know you, you don't fight it you go with it because it is what it is it's been there it's carved its little path through yes. through millennia and london oh, is what well, maybe one of the first kind of I guess for, in my head, that is that is where <laughs> White West came from yeah. in, in an English-speaking sense, you know, that yep. a, a lot of history. Modern Western civilization is yeah. birthed from London in a way, yeah. And and then just their reach, for, just, just the parts of the world, where, where didn't the English go and, yeah. you know, impose their will <laughs> in yeah. a nice way? Yeah. Or, or maybe sightsee in a, yeah. in a completely yeah. oblivious way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I definitely think you feel the age of places. I One thing that I really like to do in my head wherever I go is I wish that we had these Google glasses 
they do exist, but I wish there was glasses that you could put on and pick the century and walk around with those glasses on because I really get in that headspace whenever I visit somewhere with architecture that is completely foreign to what I've grown up with Yeah, because I only know this new country really. I grew up in a new country that's yeah. copied architecture. It doesn't have its own original influence from itself that's been yeah. built up from whatever it is. Um, yeah. So, you know, my, my favorite thing to do in London is walk around and pretend it's this 1900 then i'll have to go 18 then i'll push it back 400 years and and yeah you you might have a good idea there mate and go back and back and back again (laughs) and like and then i imagine before the city was there and it's my favorite one of my favorite things to do is is the very start of the city what was it yeah when you go somewhere a more local reference for us you having lived in melbourne long term and me having lived there for a period of time and also spending the majority of my childhood there for different sporting events and swimming carnivals and my whole family pretty much lives there you know you're in a creative and progressive place when you're in melbourne but it doesn't feel like there's a weight of history in a place like melbourne to me probably the fact that the weather's even nicer in sydney it feels even less that way because it's so beautiful and it's very touristy and it was built the right way around with the pretty parts on the water. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it still doesn't feel historical. That, so. That's why people always say Melbourne, oh, it's the most European city. It's borrowed its identity Yeah. from somewhere that has one. Yeah, I mean, that just happens over time. I mean, a thousand years from now, it won't appear to anyone to be that way if we manage to not destroy ourselves by that point. Yeah, so I guess just to finish up today, was there any one thing that maybe fits you know, in line with the the show that we're doing here, a pop culture kind of thing, whether it's something you wanted to see because you'd seen it on TV or, I mean, you, I know you mentioned the red buses earlier. I mean, they've permeated countless realms of pop culture in different ways. And we, I think we, across multiple generations, all know that that stems from that place. One thing that I really love about anywhere I go is language. And not only how people sound, because... You can take any group of people and separate them and they'll eventually come up with their own sound. But I think the way they trade language, how we would structure a conversation or, or the colloquial language we'd use and those those kind of things, the, the different meaning behind different words or inflictions, like yeah. I completely romanticise language. And I'm coming from Australia, <laughs> I'm not articulate. I don't have a massive vocabulary or anything like that, but I, I really love exchanges between people. And I always think of those roots of where those words came from, whether they're a group that came from somewhere else and then have been living there for maybe four or five generations to, to today. Yeah. Um, that That's something that I really get off yeah. when, I, when I go somewhere. So the UK is full of different British accents that have permeated pop culture around the world you would have heard them, yeah, a yeah. lot of them could you actually hear the regionality you can and so much more so uh than australia when when you travel australian someone says oh he sounds like from adelaide or he's from melbourne or you can definitely tell if someone's from darwin <laughs> or something you know no yeah. offense to the darwin no, no. is if that's how they want to call themselves yeah i think it's in australia it's more the words you choose to use yeah but yeah it there's something that just seems it's like this tether from their mouth, you know, yeah. from the sound that comes from there, there's this tether that goes back to this place. Yeah. And it's got such a strong identity 
like Manchester. The British know a lot about each other's accents too, from what I've gathered. They they absolutely do. There's always a cool story for how they bag each other's accents out. Like I heard that apparently the the Liverpool accent, I think it's Liverpool. I'm not sure which one it is, but apparently it's described as all pants, no trousers. (laughs) Like it's this very strange sound. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely entertaining. So obviously you you meeting people on the street, you would have just been hearing a world of different accents. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it doesn't matter what they're saying to me sitting on the street. I, I've made a lot of people's day playing music. They've really enjoyed it. Or some people have given me the old, oh, you're offending me for, I don't know, but I'm a frustrated person and you seem good to vent at. <laughs> and, and I hear those things and I just think, oh, wow. Cool, cool. You know, awesome. I, I really, I, cool. Yeah, keep it coming. That's yeah. fine. Like, I, I don't, I never. I think you choose to take on other people's yeah. emotions, and I, I choose not to ever. <laughs> Probably a good idea for someone who's traveling to live, and someone who is just on the road traveling, just in general, because yeah, that could really bum you out if you turn out turn up somewhere and you start, you know, absorbing all the anger that's around you for whatever reason yeah, at I the just time. Don't see a point in that. Yeah. So I guess when it comes to the UK and the metropolis that is London, is there maybe one really practical on-the-ground tip you could give to someone, just say, that's going there with a budget maybe a little closer to what you were going with than someone that's going there with a gold MasterCard? (laughs) I think it would be the same tip that I would try and give for most cities. Cities do have their own identity, but they are all run, in a sense, by the same people. It's always the same types of people that end up in the same ministries that have a lot of control over, you know, like the like public services or the transportation or, or whatever it is. Go to the internet to find everything you need. You, you, you like living off the specials, living off the cheap things. Yep. Because London, like anywhere, will bleed you and it will tell you something special like Sydney would or Tokyo or, or anywhere. Um, but, but I do think... Sadly, a lot of the places that we're going to be covering in this show... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. There is a wealth of information online that people like myself are putting up there for free. I don't earn any money for for putting yeah. all so that stuff online. Just for someone who's at home and they're thinking, they already obviously know or they might have discovered some of the information already and or they're aware that it's there. Is there a process you can suggest for filtering for somewhere like London that people have been talking about travelling to London since the beginning of the written word? Yeah. Well, since the beginning of that city, I should say, about it being somewhere people travel to, how do you go about sifting through what's worth reading and what's not? You have to have a process, otherwise you'd just go down an endless Google and YouTube rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, well, I guess speaking for myself, what we were after was very specific and very basic. Yeah. We need cheap accommodation, and that's at places that have a bar and somewhere yeah. that can facilitate our bargaining chip or what it is that we're using to travel with. But I think someone that lives there, definitely, if you know someone that lives lives there or has been there that knows the local area, because I I can only tell you here's a good few places on Earl's Court that were cheap and then here's a good few places maybe on Liverpool Street that were cheap. But I knew they were cheap because I'd met someone that said, oh, let me take you to this one place just now. So, So I do think cash in on friends that have been there Yep. Because they'll have their own local or locale where yeah. they've got their little tips and I maybe and build off that. 
with maybe just more straight travel plans so you weren't needing maybe so much to play for your bread every day for the lack of a better term yep how do you think you'd go about prioritizing the things you wanted to do when there is an infinite number of pubs and historical events and historical places and reenactments and other famous cities within the same country like I think the most important thing about making any travel plan is, and I see this burn out more travellers than anything else, and I think that is over-planning the spaces in between. Yep. So you have maybe four or five things that you really want to do somewhere. Yep. Make those things priority, and then everything else organic. Right. So you basically have pillars, which are events or places. 100%, because travel is going to throw you around and chew you up and spit you out and you're going to need to survive it because you have yourself to rely on yeah. you know yeah. so I, I definitely think being fluid is the best way to go with that current yeah so I guess just to get in the ballpark though to know that to be able to be fluid you kind of have to be in the right arena first then that's where those pillar type things come in I want to do this thing definitely and then I also want to do that Yep. But the gap in between is where you think the real traveling is happening. Yeah. That's where well, the real experience I, well, can think, happen. Yeah. I think I say that because I didn't have any expectations about anywhere I went. Purposely, I didn't have any expectations about where I went. And as a result, I wasn't blown off course <laughs> yep. by any sense. Um, yep. I, I wasn't defeated by any situation that came up that, that could have been bad. So have those pillars, have those important things that you really want to check out because that's you don't just go to London to say g'day. You're attracted to certain things there. It's, yeah. it's, it's beautiful, it's old, but I just think the spaces in between, even if you don't get heaps out of it, they're going to give you time either side of those pillars because you can be the most planned person in the world and I've seen it happen. Yeah. And they fly home a week later and they've still got four months left on their trip. Yeah. You know, I have a friend, I'm not going to say any names, but he went to he went to Amsterdam, which is a dangerous place to visit with a with a lot of money and and, right. <laughs> and a lot of pent up energy. Yeah. Uh, so he and it, it it's a commitment to fly to from Australia anywhere. It's a, it's a commitment. It's yeah. a lot of money. It's a lot of time either way, each uh, each side of your that your trip. Um, he was gone for three days. Wow. And he booked his flight home. You just couldn't. He he just went nuts. And it was like, oh, you know, this is my time. I think I think he had a, a you know, three and a half week, four four week trip booked, and and he said to me one thing, and I never I'll never forget it. He said, "Do you know what I did? I borrowed happiness from the next day. You never borrow happiness from the next day." Right. So he just went nuts, and he had like he had that one thing he wanted to do, but yeah, it it, it kind of all got built up around that. Right. And as a result, that completely destroyed him. And and he said, I thought about it and I thought about it. Maybe not long enough because yeah. he flew home pretty quickly after he got there. But yeah, there was nothing that could change his mind. And that's what happens to people when you get stuck in that headspace. Nothing can change your mind on the spot. You can come home and after you've relaxed and had your shower and all your little comfort blankets come back around you, then you rethink it and think, oh, that was stupid. But um. <laughs> The best way to avoid that headspace is to have those pillars and then to be fluid in between. Right. So that's some good advice. So I'm planning on finishing up most of these episodes with just something funny, 
well, it's probably actually going to be torturous, but I think that in itself is somewhat funny. Can you describe the jet lag either way on your trip to the UK from Australia? Going to the UK was sweet. I always found coming back to Australia I've is, heard what, that a few times is what knocks you around. Um, coming forward in time. as yeah. So how, how was it when you got back to Australia? When I got back to Australia, so I make, I make a point of being on the plane and it's like, all right, not very often am I given the opportunity to sit down and watch movies for 20 hours. Yeah. Because you you should feel guilty for doing that at home. That's how, that's what life tells you. That's you, what everyone should tell you. you what have you been would, sitting yeah. at home watching movies for 20 hours? Yeah. You know, get a life kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, all right, now I'm on an aeroplane. I can do this and not feel bad. And I've got all these new movies I can watch that I never watch because I don't ever have enough money to go see a movie. <laughs> yeah. So I stayed awake on both of my flights and in transit in Abu Dhabi. I got back at four o'clock in the morning and I stayed awake till 11 o'clock that night. Wow. And that was massive, massive hours. <laughs> Woke up at four o'clock the next morning. I thought, okay, probably earlier than what I want. But if I can just inch this across an hour or two and I can get up at six o'clock every day, I'm going to feel good about getting up. Even if I'm, I'm not going to a job, but I'm going to feel good because I can be productive. I can be up yeah. early and be productive. I want to operate as a morning person, not as a night person. Yeah. Um, and I think three days into that and... Literally, it was like narcolepsy. As soon as I felt a bit of tiredness, it would come on quite randomly. Yep. That was it. I was right. out. I, I could not convince myself with any stimulant yep. to stay awake. <laughs> so you you thought you'd gotten away with it? I, I thought I'd hacked it. Wow. Um, and I, I even did... Uh, That's a, such a terrible word. We'll talk about that in the future. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, but I, I even was fasting. Because fasting is a good way to reset your metabolism, which hopefully resets yep. your sleeping pattern. So I, I did a lot of fasting for it. Uh, but I don't think there was a way to avoid it. I think you just can't go through such a rapid transition yep. uh, without having to pay for it somewhere along the way. And, and completely worth it. Let's finish up on that. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love yep. it. Absolutely. So, is there anywhere online that people can check out what you're doing? Obviously, the Busker's Guide videos are still up. Is the website still up? Yep. So, the website's still up. Um, I, I do need... There's a lot more content I would like to add that I have ready. It's just a process of doing it all myself for no money, for yeah. love. But if anyone has any information on, on really cool travel things, pop culture-wise as well, you know, we definitely yeah. want to direct people in into the, all the good places. Uh, but right now, I'm working for... George's studio, George and his brother's studio that kind of was on hiatus after they he went and got f famous. Famous, yes. <laughs> uh, More on that in the future, maybe. Hopefully. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Um, so we that's called Scrambled Studios. So uh, right now, George and I are working uh, together and independently for the, the film studio. So we're, we're filming, editing, uh, making music, recording music, animation all kinds of you know designing logos and nice yeah and what's i know that we're drawing this out but what's next on the travel agenda well josh i don't know if i've told you this but i think next week i'm about to go spend 12 months in a very remote indigenous community in the northern territory dry community there's the real torture yep um doing youth work that's amazing and well done. Cheers, Congratulations. man. So, thank you. So I'm going to be in, in the desert for 12 months. Excellent. Yeah. Well, make sure you let me know when you want to go to Japan, though. 
Because I think we talked about that. <laughs> I'll have I'll finally have money in my wallet for the first time in my life after this. Yes. And my first trip is Japan. Strange. Stop being a musician. <laughs> Twelve months and, later, you've you got, got cash. Money. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to go back to being a musician. The, the plan is after I've, I'm going to shout George a ticket as well because I just kind of share all my money with him and he does the same with me. Yep. It still happens after the trip. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to go back to Melbourne and put tw- uh, 24 months rent on a warehouse, and and live and work from a warehouse in Melbourne. And not be in debt for the first two years of the business, which is most businesses start in debt and stay in debt for a while and do not make enough money to maybe even cover overheads for the first two years. So the idea is to come back and start the studio space in the green with green. Excellent. Very good. Okay. Japan. Well, thank you, sir. It's been awesome. And yeah, for a very first episode, I think that's going to be a cracker. Cool. Thank you very much for having me Pleasure. on the show, everyone. Thank you. See you later. This is an ArmorPod production. Send all production inquiries to armorpod at gmail.com.